0: Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Superman died at 1.59 a.m. on June 16, 1959. Not the comic book character, of course, but the man who personified the real Superman for an entire generation of television fans. George Reeves, it was discovered, was not faster than a speeding bullet after all. Even though the initial coroner's report listed Reeves' death as an indicated suicide, after nearly five decades, there are many who do not believe that he killed himself. The death of George Reeves remains one of Hollywood's most compelling unsolved mysteries, combining rumors of murder, conspiracy, cover-ups, and a lingering ghost. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos, I'm Darren Marlar and this is a Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, the strange and bizarre, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you're new here, welcome to the show, and if you're already a member of this weirdo family, please take a moment and invite someone else to listen. Recommending Weird Darkness to others helps make it possible for me to keep doing the show. And while you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com, where you can find the daily podcast and all social media that I'm on, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, MeWe, and others, along with the Weird Darkness Weirdos Facebook group. Now, Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. He was born George Kiefer Brewer in Wollstock, Iowa, the son of Don Brewer and Helen Lesher, just five months into his parents' marriage. The pair separated soon afterward, and Helen moved back to Galesburg, Illinois. A short time later, George's mother moved to Pasadena, California to stay with her sister, and there she met and married Frank Basolo in 1927. Frank adopted George as his son, and the boy took on his new stepfather's last name to become George Basolo. Helen's marriage to Frank lasted 15 years and ended in divorce while George was away visiting relatives. Helen told George that Frank had committed suicide. It would not be until George joined the army during World War II that he discovered a number of things that his mother had hidden from him. She had concealed his true birth date and the fact that Basolo was still alive and that he was actually George's stepfather, not his biological father. This information disturbed Reeves so much that he did not speak to his mother through most of the 1940s. Growing up, George Reeves was an accomplished athlete and in 1932 entered the Golden Gloves boxing competition against his mother's wishes. He did well in the event and went to the Olympics in Los Angeles in 1932. After having his nose broken nine times, he hung up his gloves and decided to pursue acting. He'd started acting and singing in high school and continued performing on stage as a student at Pasadena Junior College. Accepted by the Pasadena Playhouse, Reeves had prominent roles. His film career began in 1939 when he was cast as Stuart Tarleton, one of Vivian Lee's suitors in Gone with the Wind. It was a minor role but he and Fred Crane, both with brightly dyed red hair as the Tarleton twins, were in the film's opening scenes. He was contracted to Warner Brothers at the time and the actor's professional name became George Reeves. He married actress Eleonora Needles in 1940 but had no children with her during their nine-year marriage. Reeves starred in a number of two real short subjects and appeared in several low-budget pictures including two with Ronald Reagan and three with James Cagney. Warner Brothers loaned him out to co-star with Merle Oberon in Lydia, a box office failure. After his Warner Brothers contract expired, he signed on with 20th Century Fox, but was released after only a handful of films. He freelanced, appearing in five Hopalong Cassidy westerns before he was cast as Lt. John Summers opposite Claudette Colbert in So Proudly We Hail. The war drama for Paramount won him critical acclaim for the role and considerable publicity. Reeves was drafted into the Army about 18 months after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. In late 1943, he was transferred to the U.S. Army Air Forces and assigned to the Broadway show Winged Victory, produced by and for the USAAF. A long Broadway run followed, as well as a national tour and a movie version of the play. He was later transferred to the USAAF's first motion picture unit, where he made training films. After the war ended, Reeves returned to Hollywood, but many studios had slowed down their production schedules and others had shut down completely. He took work where he could find it, including in some outdoor thrillers with Ralph Byrd and a serial called The Adventures of Sir Galahad. These were low-budget films for which Reeves simply fit the rugged casting requirements and, with his retentive memory for dialogue, could do well under rushed production conditions. He also played against type, with one villainous role as a gold hunter in a John Weismuller Jungle Jim film, which turned out to be a moderate success for a B-picture. In the autumn of 1949, Reeves, whose divorce had recently become final, decided to move to New York. While there, he performed on several live television anthology programs as well as on radio. Reeves returned to Hollywood in April 1951, specifically for a role in a Fritz Lang film, Rancho Notorious. In June 1951, Reeves' career permanently changed when he was offered the role of Superman in a television series. He was initially reluctant to take the role because, like many actors of his time, he considered television to be unimportant and believed that few would see his work. He worked for low pay, even as the star, and was only paid during the weeks of production. The half-hour films were shot on tight schedules of at least two shows every six days. His career as Superman began with Superman and the Mole Men, a film that was designed to be a theatrical picture and the pilot for the television series. Immediately after it was completed, Reeves and the crew began production of the first season's episodes, shot over 13 weeks during the summer of 1951. The series began airing in 1952, and Reeves was astonished when he became a national celebrity in his role as newspaper reporter Clark Kent, who was really Superman. In 1957, the struggling ABC network picked up the show for national broadcast which gave him and the rest of the cast even greater visibility. His portrayal of the character became wildly popular, and everywhere he went, children and adults alike clamored to meet him and obtain his autograph. Reeves never resented doing personal appearances as Superman, especially since they paid money beyond his meager salary, and his affection for young fans was genuine. Reeves took his role model status seriously avoiding cigarettes where children could see him, eventually quitting smoking altogether and keeping his private life very discreet. But Reeves loved women, and many who were close to him stated that he broke the hearts of as many of the actresses that he worked with. In 1951, he had begun a romantic relationship with a married ex-showgirl, Tony Mannix, wife of MGM general manager Eddie Mannix. Some believe this affair may have cost Reeves his life. Whether or not Reeves resented being typecast as Superman, he played the heroic role to the hilt, and sometimes not just on screen. With Tony Mannix, Reeves worked tirelessly to raise money to fight Myasthenia Gravis, a neuromuscular disease leading to fluctuating muscle weakness and fatigue. He served as national chairman for the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation in 1955. During the second season, Reeves appeared in a short film for the U.S. Treasury Department in which he caught some crooks and told kids why they should invest in government savings stamps. Jack Larson, who played Jimmy Olson in the series, recalled that Reeves was always a gentleman to the other actors in the show, although he loved to play practical jokes on the cast and crew. He insisted that the original Lois Lane, Phyllis Coates, be given equal billing in the credits in the first season. When Coates was replaced by Noelle Neal, Reeves quietly defended her nervousness on her first day. When he felt the director was being too harsh with her. He also stood by Robert Shane, who played police inspector William Bill Henderson, when Shane was subpoenaed by FBI agents on the set of Superman. Shane's political activism in the Screen Actors Guild in the 1940s was used by his bitter ex-wife as an excuse to lie and say that he was a member of the Communist Party. On the other hand, Reeves delighted in standing outside camera range, making faces at the other cast members to see whether he could break them up. By all accounts, there was a strong camaraderie among the principal actors of the show. After two seasons, though, Reeves began to get tired of both the Superman role and the low salary he was receiving. He was now 40, and he wanted to move on with his career. He established his own production company and conceived a television adventure series called Port of Entry, Which would be filmed on location in Hawaii and Mexico. He wrote the pilot script himself and prepared to start pre-production work when the producers of Superman offered him a large salary increase. Not wanting to turn it down, he returned to the role. In 1957, there was talk of producing a new theatrical Superman film and possibly discontinuing the television series, but this never happened. Instead, another season of the show was developed. By mid-1959, contracts were signed, costumes refitted, and new scripts were assigned to the writers. Noel Neal was quoted as saying that the cast was ready to do a new season of the still popular show. Producers reportedly promised Reeves that the new programs would be as serious and action-packed as the first season, guaranteed him creative input, and slated him to direct several of the new shows as he had the final three episodes of the 1957 season. In between the first and second seasons of Superman, Reeves got sporadic acting assignments on television and in two feature films, Forever Female and The Blue Gardenia. But by the time the series was airing nationwide, Reeves found himself so associated with Superman and Clark Kent that it was difficult for him to find other roles. He also sang on The Tony Bennett Show in August 1956 and appeared in an episode of I Love Lucy as Superman. His good friend Bill Walsh, a producer at Disney Studios, gave Reeves a prominent role in Westward Ho the Wagons, in which Reeves wore a beard and mustache. It was to be his final feature film appearance. In spite of his sporadic film and television work and Superman appearances, Reeves was not doing well financially. In 1958, he broke off his affair with Tony Mannix and announced his engagement to society girl Lenore Lemon. He complained to friends, columnists, and his mother of his financial problems. The royalties that he was receiving from the syndication of Superman were insubstantial, especially in view of his lifestyle. Apparently, the planned new season of the show, as well as his appearance, were a much-needed lifeline. Reeves needed money, and the only option that he had to make any was by portraying Superman, which he reluctantly agreed to do just three days after his death, he was to have returned to the boxing ring with light heavyweight champion Archie Moore. The exhibition match was to be played on television so that viewers across the country could tune in to see Superman beat the champ. Reeves told reporters the Archie Moore fight will be the highlight of my life. After the fight, he and Lenore were to be married. They planned to honeymoon in Spain and then go to Australia for six weeks where Reeves would pick up over $20,000 for appearances as Superman. The series had just been sold to an Australian television network and local viewers were clamoring to meet the Man of Steel. Reeves would then return to Hollywood later in the year to star in a feature film that he was putting together which he would also direct. He was then scheduled to shoot new episodes of Superman and receive another hefty salary increase. Things seemed to be going well for Reeves even while being stuck playing Superman, and some said that he seemed to have everything to live for. But all was not perfect in his life. In the three months before his death, Reeves was involved in three mysterious automobile mishaps that almost cost him his life. The first time, his car was nearly crushed by two trucks on the freeway. Another time, a speeding car nearly killed him, but he survived thanks to his quick athletic reflexes. The third time, Reeves' brakes failed on a narrow, twisting road. All of the brake fluid, it was discovered, was gone from the hydraulic system in spite of the fact that an examination by a mechanic found the system was in perfect working order. When the mechanic suggested that someone had pumped out the fluid, George dismissed the notion, said Arthur Wiseman, Reeves' best friend and business manager. Weissman always remained convinced that his friend had been murdered. He tried to convince Reeves that he needed to be careful but Reeves brushed off the warnings. About a month later, he began to receive death threats on his unlisted telephone line. Most of them came late at night and there were sometimes 20 or more each day. Often the anonymous caller would simply hang up when Reeves answered. They said nothing but after a few graphic and detailed threats, Reeves knew it was the same person. Nervous after the near misses in his car, Reeves filed a report with the Beverly Hills Police Department and a complaint with the LA District Attorney's Office. He even went so far as to suggest a suspect, his former lover, Tony Mannix. It was never explained why Reeves openly pointed the finger at Tony Mannix. Their relationship had never been a public one but it was a badly kept secret in Hollywood. Eddie Mannix was likely aware of the situation and didn't like it. According to Reeves' friend Arthur Weisman, Mannix was a disliked but feared member of the Hollywood movie industry. Weisman believed that the executive was responsible not only for the threats that Reeves received, but also for the attempts on his life. The DA's office investigated the complaint filed by Reeves including his accusations of Tony Mannix's involvement, but soon discovered that both Reeves and Tony were receiving telephone threats and crank calls. When that was disclosed, many people assumed that it was Eddie Mannix who had instigated the calls through employees or hired thugs. Weissman believed that Mannix was behind Reeves near-fatal auto crashes as well. In the film and theater business, Mannix had access to a lot of people outside of the general public. For a price, these men could maneuver two trucks close together on the highway or could drain the brake fluid from someone's car. Furthermore, he was sure that Mannix also had access to someone who could arrange a murder too. On June 16, 1959, Lenore Lemon served dinner at around 6.30 p.m. at Reeves Benedict Canyon home. She had prepared the meal for Reeves and guest Robert Condon, a writer who was there to do an article on Reeves and his upcoming bout with Archie Moore. After dinner, they settled down in the living room to watch television. Around midnight, everyone went to bed. Around 1 a.m., a friend named Carol Von Ronkel came by the house with another friend, William Bliss. Even though the house was the frequent scene of parties and entertaining, Reeves did not want guests after midnight. However, Von Ronkel and Bliss banged on the door until Lenore got up and let them in. George also came downstairs in his bathrobe and yelled at them for showing up so late. After blowing off steam, he stayed with the guests for a while, had a drink, and then retired upstairs again. When he left, Lenore turned to the others who were present and said something along the lines of, Well, he's sulking. He'll probably go up to his room and shoot himself. The house guests later heard a single gunshot. Bliss ran into the master bedroom and found George Reeves dead, lying across his bed, naked and face up, his feet on the floor. This position has been attributed to Reeves sitting on the edge of the bed when he shot himself, after which his body fell back on the bed and the 9mm Luger pistol fell between his feet. Superman was dead. The Beverly Hills Police Report of the incident states that while entertaining his fiance and three others in his home, Reeves suddenly, without any explanation, left the room and impulsively committed suicide. The statements made to the police and the press by those at the house that night essentially agree. Quite some time passed before the police were summoned to the scene, although neither Lenore nor the other witnesses made any explanation for the delay. They claimed that the shock of the death The lateness of the house and their intoxication caused the delay. They had nothing to hide. Detectives did say that all of the witnesses were extremely inebriated and that their coherent stories were very difficult to obtain. In the press, Lenore attributed Reeves' apparent suicide to depression caused by his failed career and inability to find more work, which was clearly not the case. The witness statements and examination of the crime scene led to the conclusion that the death was self-inflicted. A more extensive official inquiry concluded that the death was indeed suicide. Reeves' will bequeathed his entire estate to Tony Mannix, much to Lemon's surprise and devastation. Many people at the time, and many more in later years, have refused to believe the idea that George Reeves would kill himself. Even though he believed his friend was murdered, Arthur Wiseman surprisingly did not dispute the sequence of events offered by Lenore Lemon and other witnesses. He said that this was just how it happened, but that Reeves did not intend to kill himself. He explained that Reeves was just playing his favorite morbid game, a practice with a gun that was loaded with a blank. According to Wiseman, that was why Lenore said what she did. of Reeves' friends knew that when he was drinking, he would sometimes fire a blank at his head in a mock suicide attempt, making certain that his arm was far enough away so that he didn't get powder burns on his face. Weissman claimed that, unknown to Reeves, the blank was replaced by a real bullet by someone hired by Eddie Mannix. Reeves' clandestine former girlfriend, Tony Mannix, was madly in love with him and, according to Weissman, their relationship was an open Hollywood secret. It continued for years and then came to an end when George announced that he was marrying Lenore Lemon. Friends said that Tony was enraged over this development and began bombarding Reeves with phone calls, making all sorts of threats. It was believed that both she and her husband, who was openly humiliated by Reeves over the affair, had the perfect opportunity to seek revenge. Especially since Tony possessed a key to the Reeves' house. The police never looked deeply into Wiseman's claims of the switched bullet, believing instead that Reeves' death had been self inflicted. Among those who were unhappy with the findings of indicated suicide were Reeves' mother, Helen Basolo. She retained the Nick Harris Detectives of Los Angeles to look into the case. At that time, a man named Milos Perilio was a novice investigator at the firm and played a small role in the investigation. Nearly everyone in Hollywood has always been led to believe that George Reeves' death was a suicide, he said in a later interview. Not everyone believed it then, nor do they believe it now. I am one of those who does not. And neither did Helen Basolo. She went to her grave in 1964 convinced that her son was murdered. The Nick Harris Agency, which had been founded in Los Angeles before the FBI was even in existence, quickly came to believe that Reeves' death had been a homicide. Even based on the fact that many of the witnesses that night were intoxicated and incoherent, the detectives felt that they could rule out suicide. Unfortunately though, the Beverly Hills Police investigators chose to ignore their findings. A review of the facts seemed to indicate the agency's suspicions were well-founded, They also ruled out the idea of Reeves' suicide game as his cause of death. They believed that someone else was in the house at the time he died. For one thing, the absence of powder burns on Reeves' face showed that he did not hold the gun to his head, as the police report stated. For the weapon to have not left any facial burns, it had to have been at least a foot and a half away from Reeves' head, which is totally impractical in a suicide attempt. In addition, Reeves was discovered after his death on the bed, lying on his back. The single shell was found under his body. According to experts, self-inflicted gunshot wounds usually propel the victim forward and away from the expended bullet casing. Spiriglio made a careful examination of the police report and noticed that the bullet wound was described as irregular, so the agency reconstructed the bullet entry and exit the slug had exited Reeves' head and was found lodged in the ceiling. His head, at the moment of death, would have had to have been twisted, making a self-inflicted shot improbable. Spirelio suspected that an intruder had entered Reeves' home and that the actor had found his gun. A struggle had followed, and Reeves was shot. The intruder then escaped from the house unnoticed. While interesting, this theory does not explain why the gun, normally loaded with blanks, had a bullet in it and how the intruder escaped from the house with other people inside. Regardless of whether or not he killed himself, it was obvious that Reeves' death was never properly investigated. Police investigators never even bothered to take fingerprints at the scene and people like Arthur Wiseman believed they were pressured to make it an open and shut case. George Reeves, according to the official findings, had committed suicide. But did he really? We will never know for sure. In 1961, Reeves' body was exhumed and cremated, forever destroying whatever evidence was left behind. The death of George Reeves will always remain another unsolved Hollywood mystery. Could this be why ghostly phenomena has been reported at the former Reeves' house ever since his death? Many believe that the ghostly appearances by the actor lend credence to the idea that he was murdered. Over the years, occupants of the house have been plagued by not only the sound of a single gunshot that echoes in the darkness, but strange lights, and even the apparition of George Reeves himself. After Reeves' death, real estate agents attempted to sell the house to settle the actor's estate. Unfortunately, though, they had trouble. Occupants would not stay long because they would report inexplicable noises in the upstairs bedroom where Reeves died. When they would go to investigate the sounds, they would find the room was not as they had left it. Often the bedding would be torn off, clothing would be strewn about, and some reported the ominous odor of gunpowder in the air. One tenant also noticed that his German shepherd would stand in the doorway of the room and bark furiously, as though he could see something his owners could not. The phenomenon in the house was so widely witnessed that at one point two LA County deputies were assigned to watch the place because neighbors had reported screams, gunshots, and lights going on and off in the empty house during the night. New occupants moved out quickly, becoming completely unnerved after encountering Reeves' ghost decked out in his Superman costume. The first couple that spotted him was not the last to see him either. Many later residents also saw the ghost, and one couple became so frightened that they moved out of the house that same night. Later, the ghost was even reported on the front lawn by neighboring residents. In the 1980s, while the house was being used as a set for a television show, the ghost made another startling appearance He was seen by several of the actors and crew members before abruptly vanishing, furthering the mysterious elements of this strange and complicated case. What happened to George Reeves? We will never know for sure, and his story is doomed to become another of Hollywood's many unsolved mysteries. Weirdos, our next Weirdo Watch Party is Friday, May 13th. That's right, we're doing a Weirdo Watch Party on the unluckiest day on the calendar. And you thought horror movies couldn't get any worse. Horror host Vincent Price, um sorry uh Princeton Princeton Vice. There you go, that's how we say it. Anyway, he brings us 1946's The Curse of the Raidens. This movie is a character based on Spring Heeled Jack, which we've talked about here on Weird Darkness. It stars Todd Slaughter, and his acting and facial expressions are so over-the-top you can probably describe him as an early cinema B-movie version of Jim Carrey. The Weirdo Watch Party is always free, so grab your popcorn, candy, and soda and jump into the live chat. Or just sit back and watch this horrible B-movie with a fun horror host. Friday, May 13th, it's The Curse of the Raidens presented by Vincent… no, uh, Princeton Vice. The fun begins at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. in Hawaii, and 1 a.m. for our Greenwich Mean Time viewers. And if you don't want to wait until showtime for the fun, well, the Weirdo Watch Party page is always streaming horror hosts and B-horror movies all day long, every day of the year, on the Weirdo Watch Party page at WeirdDarkness.com. In modern times, many people believe in the existence of ghosts and spirits. Our ancestors shared many of these beliefs and ancient cultures across the world had different concepts of death and afterlife. During the Middle Ages, people were convinced one does not come to heaven or hell right away. The Roman Catholic concept of purgatory was widespread. People were convinced that after death, there was a sort of temporary purifying punishment one has to undergo in order to enjoy the presence and beauty of God and heaven. By the late Middle Ages, it was a popular practice for people to leave money in their wills to hire priests that would perform mass for their souls. Many medieval ghost stories are about souls struggling in the purgatory. These troubled souls often contact their relatives and ask for help to relieve their suffering and assist them in entering heaven. These could range from paying a debt, fulfilling a vow, or just making sure they were being prayed for. There is a very curious medieval ghost story related by Orderic Vitalis, an English chronicler and Benedictine monk, who wrote one of the great contemporary chronicles of 11th and 12th century Normandy and Anglo-Norman England. While being at the abbey of St. to Normandy, Orderic wrote his Ecclesiastical History. It contains vital information about the Anglo-Norman world up to the year 1141. Orderic wrote about the reigns of the kings William I to Stephen, the political events that happened locally and abroad, and even about the news coming from his own monastery. The most unusual story deals with a priest whose name was Walshellen. According to Orderic, something very strange happened in the diocese of Lisieux on January 1st. The priest was returning home after visiting a sick man at the far end of his parish. While traveling along the road, far from any homes, he suddenly heard strange sounds. These were sounds of an approaching army, but who could it be? His first thought was this was the great army of Robert of Bellamy, a younger son of Roger de Montgomery. First Earl of Shropshire or Shrewbury, Robert inherited lordships in Normandy, among them Bellamy in the present French department of Orne. While Shellan was scared and thought it would be in his best interest to hide behind the trees and let the army pass by, Orderick relates what happened next. But a man of huge stature, carrying a great mace, barred the priest's way as he ran, and brandishing the weapon over his head, cried out, Stand! Go no further. The priest obeyed at once and stood motionless, leaning on the staff he was carrying. The stern mace bearer stood beside him without harming him, waiting for the army to pass by. The priest stood at the side of the road and watched thousands of people pass by. He saw peasants with animals, hundreds of women, priests, monks, and a great army of knights. The description of the people he witnessed tell the women were riding side-saddle on horses, but the saddles were marked with red-hot nails. As the women rode, they would jump off their saddles and into the air and then land back on the nails, leaving them burned and stabbed. The sight was incredible, but the most frightening part was that he recognized many of the faces. These were people who he knew, but they died many years ago. Some of them were his neighbors." The worst of this group were those being carried on buyers, suffering terrible punishments. On the buyers sat men as small as dwarfs, but with huge heads like barrels. One enormous tree trunk was borne by two Ethiopians, and on the trunk some wretch, tightly trussed, was suffering tortures, screaming aloud in his dreadful agony. A fearful demon sitting on the same trunk was mercilessly goading his back and loins with red hot spurs while he streamed with blood. Walshalin at once recognized him as the slayer of the priest Stephen and realized he was suffering unbearable torments for his guilt in shedding innocent blood not two years earlier, for he had died without completing his penance for the terrible crime. Walshalin was convinced he was watching an army of dead passing by. This was undoubtedly the Heliquin's army, doomed souls marching through the land. It had been a folk tale for many years. There are several tales about Heliquin's army or Heliquin's hunt, some of which involve King Arthur or other medieval legends. Church writers apparently associated this ghostly ramble with purgatory, offering a horrific example to the living on what awaits those who sinned when they died. Walshalin told himself, I've heard many who claimed to have seen them but have ridiculed the tale-tellers and not believed them because I never saw any solid proof of such things. Now I do indeed see the shades of the dead with my own eyes, but no one will believe me when I describe my vision unless I can show some token to living men. I will catch one of the riderless horses following the host, quickly mount it, and take it home to compel the belief of my neighbors when I show it to them." One of the knights, William of Gloss, approached the priest and told him about how his sins in life were punishing him in his death. "'But most of all usury torments me, for I lent my money to a poor man, receiving a mill of his as a pledge, and because he was unable to repay the loan, I retained the pledge all my life and disinherited the legitimate heir by leaving it to my heirs. See. I carry a burning mill shaft in my mouth, which, believe me, seems heavier than the castle of Rowan. Therefore, tell my wife Beatrice and my son Roger that they must help me by quickly restoring to their heir the pledge from which they have received far more than I ever gave. As Walshalin heard more about this knight's sins and his demands, he decided not to help him. As the story goes, several of the knights approached the priest and asked for help, and then finally the army of dead vanished out of sight. Walshalin was ill for a week, but when he recovered, he told the story to the local bishop. Orderic Vitalis reveals that he himself had heard this story from Walshalin himself and even saw the scar on his face caused by the evil knight. Walshalin would live for at least another 15 years. Did Walshalin really see an army of dead? Or was he witnessing something from a parallel world? Scientists have discovered that intriguing and odd ripples in space-time may offer evidence of parallel universes. If there are extra dimensions in the universe, then gravitational waves can walk along any dimension, even the extra dimensions. If we could access higher dimensions, we could see all past, present, and future events appear before our eyes simultaneously. We could see the construction of the pyramids at Giza, the end of World War II, and an important event of the future we still know nothing about. History of the past, present, and future would become available to us, just like a movie. From a scientific point of view, we cannot dismiss the possibility the medieval priest accidentally stumbled upon a portal to another dimension and witnessed something from another world. But if he did, why did the knights tell him were all dead. It's an intriguing story that leaves a lot to think about. When I was about six years old, my family and I moved into a five-bedroom home in South Omaha, Nebraska. This part of town was well known to be super sketchy. In all honesty, it wasn't the greatest place to raise a family However, my family wasn't the richest, and the rent was cheap, and the house was big. Before we get into the actual paranormal part, I want to explain what the house looked like. We had a steep hill before the house that led to three or four stairs. These stairs led to the purple porch. The front door led into the living room. Staring ahead, you would see the entrance to the kitchen and a set of stairs that went to the right. From the living room, you could turn left down a hallway. The hallway led to four of the bedrooms and one bathroom. Now for the upstairs. At the top of the stairs I described earlier, there was a window. Keep this in mind for later. To the left was the fifth bedroom and to the right was an open area that we used as a secondary family room. Later on the upstairs became my aunt's place. She came to live with us and she resided up there. Now that you have an idea of what the house looked like, I can get on with the spooky. This house had three spiritual entities, or ghosts. There was an elderly woman who sat at the window at the top of the stairs, an elderly man who resided in the basement, and a little girl about ten years old. I never really came into contact with the man downstairs due to the fact that there was really no reason for me to go down there. Now the other two, the little girl, more so. I had several encounters with her. We will start with the man. My mom thought that when this elderly couple was alive, way back when, back when there were plantations, this man had a workshop in the basement. She thought this because the basement had a heavy smell of woodworking. Now, this man was definitely not harmful, but he didn't want anyone down in the basement. It was his space, and anyone who went down there knew it. That's really all I have on the old man. On to the elderly woman. Like I said before, she sat at the top of the stairs in front of the window. I had one interaction with her that chilled me. The fifth bedroom upstairs was my playroom before my aunt moved in one night I asked my mom if I could have a little sleepover in my playroom. I don't know why I wanted to do this. I was a weird kid, I guess. She said yes and tucked me in my little sleeping bag in the bedroom. Well, she went into the family room right down the hall from me. As I was laying there, trying to sleep, I got this weird feeling as if someone was watching me. I brushed it off like I usually do and started to fall asleep. Then, I kid you not, I heard a woman's sing-song voice say, Hannah, come here, baby. I thought it was my mom since she was in the room down the hall. I got up and went to her bed and asked what she wanted. Obviously, she was confused as to why I thought she needed me. I explained to her that I heard her call for me and she denied it. At this point, my whole body was filled with chills and I insisted on going back to my room to sleep. Finally, I will talk about the little girl named Sarah. Sarah was maybe 10 years old, and I played with her all the time. I would even talk to her. I don't remember this, but my mom told me that she would see me running around the house, and when she asked me what I was doing, I would reply with, oh, just playing with Sarah, Of course, my mom just brushed it off as an imaginary friend. She would later learn that was not the case. One time I was laying on my bed watching the Disney Channel. My TV was at the end of my bed, so I would lay on my stomach facing the TV. Well, I distinctly remember having my light on while watching my show. Keep in mind that when I get into a show, that's the only thing my mind focuses on. I zone out. Well, When the TV went to commercial and I came out of my TV coma, I realized that my light had been turned off. I went out and asked who had done it, and my mom and her husband both denied it. My younger sister was way too short to reach the switch as well. When we were moving out of this house, I asked my mom if Sarah could come with. My mom jokingly said, tell her to pack the light. After me telling my mom about Sarah, she started to think that maybe she was more than an imaginary friend. After we moved out of the house, my mom researched anything regarding the house and deaths that may have surrounded it. The most chilling thing she found was that a little girl named Sarah died near the house from a car accident. How she got attached to the house is beyond us, but to this day, I still have dreams about her. Few things are more unsettling than an unsolved missing persons case. What happened to Virginia Carpenter? She has been missing for 69 years and investigators are still as stumped now as they were in 1948. Virginia was a beautiful 21-year-old woman known to friends for being happy-go-lucky and polite. She had recently enrolled at Texas State College for Women in Denton where she planned to become a laboratory technician. She previously attended Texarkana Junior College and saved up money so she could pursue her dream of working in the sciences. However, Virginia would not be able to attend even one of her classes at Texas State College for Women. Something or someone stopped her in her tracks. On June 1, 1948, Virginia left home in Texarkana, Texas and boarded a train to the Denton campus to begin her summer classes. Upon arriving, she hailed a taxi to her student housing at Breckenridge Hall. She got into a cab, driven by driver Edgar Ray Jack Zachary. The driver said he arrived with Virginia in front of the hall around 9.30pm. When they pulled up, Zachary noted that two men in a convertible were parked out front and calling to her. According to the driver, Virginia called out to the boys, Well, what are y'all doing over here? Because one of her trunks had yet to arrive, Virginia paid Zachary a dollar to fetch the item from the train station the following morning. As for the luggage she had with her in the taxi, Virginia told Zachary that the two men would assist her. She said she knew the pair and talked with them for a bit as Zachary drove off. This was the last reported sighting of Virginia Carpenter. She never checked into the dormitory. The following morning, Zachary picked up and dropped off her trunk at Brackenridge Hall, where it sat, unopened at the front door. The identities of the two men remain a mystery to this day. The only information authorities possessed was a loose physical description of the two men provided by Zachary. One was tall, the other short and stocky, and their cream-colored car. Three days later, on June 4th, Virginia's boyfriend, Kenny Branham, contacted Virginia's mother, saying he could not get a hold of the young woman. Virginia's mother contacted Texas State College for Women and discovered that Virginia never checked in on campus. The following day, on June 5th, Virginia's mother called Denton authorities to report her daughter missing. Police zeroed in on boyfriend, Kenny Branham, and the cab driver. Branham passed polygraph tests and insisted that Virginia would have no reason to run away. She didn't have a lover coaxing her to run off, no jealous exes, no wishes to leave her life behind. Branham was also the first to report Virginia missing to her mother, making his involvement unlikely. According to both the boyfriend and Virginia's mother, Virginia was sincerely looking forward to starting her semester at Texas State College for Women this led investigators to conclude that she had been taken. Police then focused their attention on the cab driver, the last person to see Virginia alive. In 1948, Zachary and his wife both claimed the driver was home by 10 p.m. and then went back to Virginia's dorm the next day to drop off her trunk. In 1957, however, this story changed. Zachary's wife, now his ex-wife, told police that she had lied in 1948 when she claimed her then-husband came home that night. She said he actually did not return until two or three the following morning. Zachary was brought in for questioning throughout the investigation. He passed multiple polygraph tests and was never charged. In 1984, he passed away. In the weeks and months following Virginia's disappearance, numerous sightings of the young woman poured in from South Texas to Louisiana and Arkansas. One report from a ticket agent in Dequeen, Arkansas is particularly compelling. The agent claimed that on the night of Friday, June 11th, a young woman disembarked a bus from Texarkana and found a seat in the bus terminal lobby. She matched Virginia's description. According to the agent, she also seemed nervous as she paced about chewed her lip and inquired about local hotels. Ten minutes later, a man in his mid-twenties with light brown hair arrived and the two vanished into the night. Not long after their departure, the agent received a phone call from a female caller. She wanted to know if Miss Virginia Carpenter happened to be at the station. The agent's sighting, as well as all other sightings, could not be confirmed. Soon, Carpenter's case grew cold. In 1955, she was legally declared dead. The case has had a few new leads and tips over the years. In 1998, police received a tip by a man in his 70s who claimed to know not only who killed Virginia but also where her body was buried. He claimed two men had raped Carpenter and killed her and then dumped her body in a dam at a stock tank. Police searched the alleged burial site but found no remains. The sheriff also said that the two suspects who were named by the informant had since passed away, meaning their names were never released to the public. Still others speculate this case could have a connection to the phantom killer in Virginia's hometown of Texarkana. That killing spree took down five victims and happened a year prior to Virginia's disappearance. Intriguingly, Virginia knew three of the victims was she somehow connected to the killer? Did he track her down in Denton to do away with her? Sadly, we may never know the answer. Thanks for listening to this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. You can email me anytime with your questions or comments at Darren at WeirdDarkness.com. Darren is D-A-R-R-E-N. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Minds, MeWe, and more, including the show's Weirdos Facebook group, on the contact social page at WeirdDarkness.com. Also on the website, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell, click on Tell Your Story – or call the Dark Line toll-free at 1-877-277-5944. That's 1-877-277-5944. All stories in Weird Darkness are purported to be true unless stated otherwise, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a copyright and trademark of Marler House Productions. I'm Darren Marler. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com.